You know, these days we have all sorts of devices competing for our attention. We have smartphones, tablets, computers, everything, but there's still nothing like a good old fashioned book. Now, I just read one, it's called Harrier 809, Britain's Legendary Jump Jet and the Untold Story of the Falklands War. And it's written by Mr. Roland White, who joins us today. How you doing, Roland? Uh, Vincent, I'm very good. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for being here. And uh, boy, this is an amazing book, as was your Vulcan book, which I wish I'd read before our Vulcan episode. But, you know, as a guy who dabbles in a little bit of writing, I'm very jealous of your skill. But this isn't your first book, clearly, as we just said, is it? No, no, no. Uh, uh, Vulcan 607 was the first. Uh, Harrier 809 is the, uh, the fifth now. And in between, I've written about um, Britain's last big deck what was Britain's last big deck aircraft carrier, Ark Royal, in the 1970s. Small um, war against um, communist insurgents in uh, Oman in the 70s. And then perhaps of, of most uh, interest to uh, your American viewers was the book about the first flight of the space shuttle um, into the black. Uh, oh. and, uh, interviewed a number of uh, uh, former Navy aviators like uh, Dick Trudy and Bob Crippen for that. Okay. Well, in the Vulcan and the Harrier books of yours that I've read, I can attest to your research. It must be incredible and very lengthy. So uh, kudos to you for that. What was your inspiration, though, for the uh, Harrier 809 book? Well, it, was, it captured my imagination when I was a kid growing up. Um, the Falklands War uh, was fought in Britain and Argentina in uh, 1982. And it was perhaps the first time in my life, having grown up in the 70s, uh, you know, in a diet of sort of war films and uh, sort of commando comics and things and FX plastic kit models, that um, across the newspapers and TV news, uh, something that so gripped me was being played out for real. So, um, you know, we were getting daily reports of, uh, of, of dogfights and of uh, ships being attacked, of nuclear submarines and things. And, and, and really, that was what captured my imagination, I think, it was you had this... Uh, six-week war, 8,000 miles from the UK, uh, which seemed to be something of a sort of full-spectrum conflict. I mean, you had everything, as I say, from nuclear submarines sinking battle cruisers through to special forces missions, and as I say, um, dogfights between these uh, carrier-based harriers, sea harriers, uh, and uh, Argentine fighters and bombers from the mainland. And your book captures all that so well. I really did enjoy it. Uh, it was hard to put it down because not only do you describe those different events, as you just said, but you talk about the people involved and what's going on in their work and in their lives and the folks on the islands themselves. And so I really found that all very fascinating. But uh, as you just alluded, that distance between the United Kingdom and the Falkland Islands was really a challenge in and of itself, wasn't it? I mean, it, it was a massive challenge. And I think it, it became clear to me as I was doing my research that there really were only two countries on earth at that time, uh, Britain, just by the skin of its teeth in the United States, who, who could even contemplate mounting an operation like that 8,000 miles from home. And certainly, uh, you know, we were um, enormously grateful for US assistance during that conflict. Uh, I mean, one of the things which uh, we made great use of was um, uh, satellite communications, which had been borrowed from Delta Force um, just before the outbreak of the war, Stinger missiles, which were used by the SAS uh, on the islands, but also routes across the United States through to Easter Island and the, the Pacific, where we were uh, getting spy planes down to uh, to just off the Chilean coast, which were bringing in 
um, signals intelligence uh, during the early weeks of the war. So, I mean, American help was uh, was absolutely critical, not just militarily, but uh, diplomatically also. And uh, I mean, one of the more intriguing sort of avenues of of the war, a sort of what if, if you like, was um, the uh, the discussions that that went on about the use potential use of of Dwight D Eisenhower, which was um, just off Gibraltar, I think, early on in the war, and had been earmarked um, by the Pentagon as a ship which would be used should American citizens need to be evacuated from Buenos Aires, uh, but was also discussed as a potential home for uh, for, for British jets. Um, somewhat unrealistically, it might be added, uh, but then there were more realistic plans uh, explored to use uh, one of the, um, the, the, uh, the the helicopter carriers that um, the U.S. Marine Corps used as a, as a potential Harry carrier should one of the British carriers get sunk. Hmm. Well, and as your book so expertly chronicles, instead there was a different solution that nobody probably really thought of until necessity called, and, and the result of that was the uh, Atlantic conveyor. Yeah, Atlantic Convey's story is an extraordinary one. I mean, she was known uh, to uh, to her crew as the 30-Day Wonder. She had been, until the invasion, a transatlantic roll-on, roll-off container ferry, a fast transatlantic freighter. And she was converted very quickly, uh, in about a week, into a sort of ad hoc helicopter carrier. Um, but of course, as a helicopter carrier, carrying down Chinooks and Wessex helicopters down south, she was also able to operate uh, vertical takeoff Harriers as well. And so she offered uh, a great deal more flexibility than the British already had down there in theatre in the form of Hermes and Invincible and two amphibious ships as well. Of course, she didn't last because she was a victim of uh, one of the Exocet missiles that the Argentines proved was so effective uh, against the British ships happily that the squadron of harriers that she'd taken south and uh, had hoped at one point actually to launch uh, mid-atlantic vertically in order to shoot down argentinian spy plane that was shadowing the progress of the uh, the british fleet down south uh, which would have been the first time that a, a fighter had been launched from a merchant ship uh, to shoot down um, an enemy aircraft since the days of the second world war i mean it seems scarcely possible uh, to imagine it happening in the jet era, whereas it, it was uh, perhaps not so uh, so unusual back in the, the, the days of the Second World War. And your book talks about not only the Argentine threat, but again, the Atlantic conveyor and when the attack happens. For me, what it pointed out, Roland, is that military ships are built purpose-built. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that some of the other ships that are just built to transport cargo, as you said, lack is the ability to withstand battle damage, because why should they? And so, in fact, I uh, believe it was two missiles, right, uh, that struck? Yeah. But yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say is, uh, once the fire was started and the damage was done, there was almost no hope for the ship at that point. No, not at all. I mean, uh, the, the fire control system in, the, in a ship like Atlantic Conveyor um, was, um, was designed to deal with sort of smoldering bales of cotton. I mean, no, nothing like uh, two uh, <laughs> missiles carrying sort of fragmentation explosive warheads, uh, which came in. And, and of course, Atlantic Conveyor was also loaded with um, stores and weapons. It, it, was, it had a hold full of cluster bombs, right. full of fuel, full of uh, rockets and things as well. I mean, the, 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 once a fire took hold there, and normally I think the fire suppression system was used essentially sort of flood the space with uh, with CO2, but you had a great big hole in the side of the ship. There's no way you could you could make it airtight and use anything like these systems designed to, to contain a much smaller fire to, to give Atlantic Conveyor any hope at all. By the time 
the order was given to abandon ship, the ammunition in the hold was all popping off and the, there was paint blistering off the sides of the ship as the, the crew oh. made their escape. I mean, it's an incredibly dramatic episode, but but it, but at the same time, uh, through the sacrifice of Atlantic Conveyor and the 12 members of her uh, ship's company who were lost, those two critical, uh, or at least one of those critical British carriers was potentially saved from being struck by Exocet missiles itself. And and those two carriers were absolutely crucial to any possibility of British success in the war. I mean, it was the only way of providing any air cover at all to uh, over islands that were just 300 mm. miles away from the Argentine coast. And the Atlantic Conveyor, although we spent a bit of time talking about it, is really a supporting actor in this play, if you will, because it was getting those jump jets, the Harriers, down there. And one thing that I found very interesting in your book is that it wasn't just the Navy that was involved. Uh, the Royal Air Force played a role both with aircraft and pilots. They did. I mean, you know, there, there, there was um, always a good deal of rivalry between the, the Royal Navy and the, the Royal Air Force. I mean, it was a, a rivalry that went back to the formation of the Royal Air Force in 1918. Um, and which saw the Royal Flying Corps and Royal Naval Air Service subsumed in this new um, air force. And uh, the Navy didn't have control of its own airplanes until just before the Second World War. And had always felt, I think, sort of something in the shadow of the Royal Air Force in the years subsequently. It uh, felt like a sort of poor relation. But here in 1982, there's finally this opportunity for the fleet air arm to show just what they were capable of and show how uh, critical they were to, to any kind of British military adventure um, far from home. And so sort of institutionally, uh, there was this fractious relationship between the Air Force and the Navy. But operationally, you know, the, there was the greatest of respect between the, the fighter pilots of the Royal Air Force, fighter pilots of the, the, the Royal Navy. And in 1982, the, the, those naval air squadrons were stitched through with pilots on exchange from the Royal Air Force, all fighting together, um, all having enjoyed that kind of peer-on-peer -peer training that all those NATO um, uh, allies uh, enjoyed, and which, of course, the, the Argentines didn't share. I mean, this is the, the, those Royal Air Force, Royal Navy pilots who were flying the Sea Harriers just had the finest training in the world, and that's something that all of the... The, the pilots that I spoke to who fought in the Falklands testified to, uh, they felt supremely confident going down there because they were confident in their training and they were confident not just in what they knew their aeroplanes could do, but as a result of that training, also what they couldn't do. So they played to their strengths rather than falling prey to their weaknesses. Right. I always say a good rivalry is something you do when you don't have something better to do. And so when the chips were down, of course, everybody pulled together. And again, your book chronicles just what they had to do in such a small amount of time and uh, to ultimately be victorious. And so uh, but getting back to the point of the story is the Harrier that goes down is such an enormous part of the overall uh, effort because it was the aircraft that brought weapons and at the very least, the, uh, it affected the Argentines and, and it influenced what they ended up doing, in some cases pulling back where they could have been more effective. Your book talks about that because they went on a bit of a defense, that uh, that really probably changed the outcourse of the conflict. Oh, undoubtedly. I mean, after the war, um, Margaret Thatcher said, without the Harrier, uh, there couldn't have been victory in the Falklands War. And it was something that the first Sea Lord, Chief of the Naval Staff, also said, you know, without the uh, the Sea Harrier, there could have been no task force. And the, the reality was that um, without uh, any conventional carriers, um, without cats and traps, 
there was simply no other way of getting fast jet uh, air power uh, to the South Atlantic uh, for the British other than using uh, using Harriers. And there were only 20 Sea Harriers went down initially aboard Hermes and Invincible. Um, wow. And that's a pretty pretty thin line of defense against nearly 200 combat jets flying from, from the mainland. And so there was a critical need for reinforcements. And this is really the, the premise upon which the book I wrote was built, was the recreation, the recommissioning of 809 Naval Air Squadron uh, about five days after the invasion, um, trained hurriedly uh, in less than two weeks, and then sent south to fight in a, fight in a war against uh, a very capable enemy. And uh, so the, the whole story, uh, uh, which, as I say, has 809 Squadron in its heart, but I think tells the wider stories, as you said, of the Royal Air Force contribution and, and, and certainly of the, the vital uh, role played uh, by 800 and 801 Squadron, the two frontline um, Sea Harrier Squadrons. Um, 809 Squadron's recreation has a sort of dirty dozen feel to it. You know, they were pulling pilots back from all over the world from, from exchange tours with uh, the U.S. Navy in California at Patuxent River, from the U.S. Marine Corps at Yuma, and from Australia. And, then, and they were all sort of thrown together in this, um, in this pot in Yeovilton in Somerset, trained up, as I said, for a few weeks and then sent south. And, you know, two days after arriving there on, on Atlantic Conveyor, they were flying combat missions. Um, so it's got this wonderful sort of race against time uh, and uh, sort of feel to it, uh, as, as well as, as I say, that sort of dirty dozen idea of uh, a group of unlikely people yeah. thrown together to, to try and do something extraordinary. And uh, obviously, we, we know in the end that, uh, that, that, uh, that it was an extraordinary feat of combined arms to win victory um, down there. But it, but it was easy to forget, because war was won, um, just how... Uh, difficult a job it was. I mean, eight thousand miles is from from the UK is like trying to mount an operation against Western China. I mean, it's a long, long way from home. Well, extraordinary is probably the best word, not only for what happened, but for the book, which once again is Harrier Eight Hundred Nine, Britain's legendary jump jet, and the untold story of the Falklands War by Roland White, who's joined us today. Roland, I so enjoyed this book that I'm sure our listeners and viewers will as well. Uh, I'm happy to put forth the effort to help you give some of these away to generate a little excitement. Uh, I think you told me before you've got five that you can send. Yeah, Is that right? I, absolutely. I've got five signed copies. If uh, anyone listening uh, wants to claim one of them, I get, imagine it's sort of first come, first serve, Vince, and I'll leave that in your hands. But uh, I will I'll, I'll happily send them off. And uh, I... Really appreciate you giving me the chance to, to talk about the book, and I hope it is something that uh, your viewers and listeners will enjoy. Oh, I think they will. So instead of first come, first serve, why don't we do a little giveaway that we sometimes do? So if you're watching this, head on over to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, either on Twitter or Facebook is the best place, and you'll see a link for the giveaway. You can sign up. It might ask you to subscribe to our channel or do something that will help your chances. But uh, at the end, after a few days, we'll Find the winners and we'll forward that information to you, Roland, and you can get this very exciting, wonderful book in their hands. Roland, where can people follow you? Are you on social media? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, uh, um, at Roland White, and it's Roland with a W, and I've got a website as well, um, rolandwhite.com. I'm, uh, I'm a little less um, prominent on Twitter than I ha had been a few months ago, just because I'm heads down trying to write a new book, uh, and Twitter, is, as anyone who uses Twitter knows, is uh, the most marvelous distraction. Can use up a lot of time very, very quickly. And I'm trying to spend that uh, writing a, a new book. For sure. Well, good. We're excited about that. Please keep us posted on it. And I want to thank you for this awesome book and for your time today, Roland.
Vincent, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I really appreciate it.